I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Wanarua people. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. It's a really special place, and I just want to be a part of getting the story back out to the people, explaining to everyone what Mount Pleasant is, the significance of it, you know, getting people up here to enjoy it with me. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Adrian Sparks has ignited plenty of energy at Mount Pleasant Winery. One of the most important wineries in the history of Australia, it speaks loudly to Sparks' talent and ability that he joins the legacy as the fifth chief winemaker. As someone who speaks his mind and never misses a clock off beer, I am thrilled to have Adrian Sparks join me today. Hi, Adrian. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. How are you? I'm very well. I'm really well. And I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast finally. So this is all about talking about you, Sparksy, all about your likes and dislikes. Do you like long walks on the beach? Are you that kind of guy? (laughs) Oh, as long as it's quick. I can do it fast. No, not really. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I'm kidding, of course. Let's start at the beginning. You were born at Griffith. Where did the journey of wine begin for you? Um, Well, I was actually born in a little town called Narandra. Um, oh. enough. Yeah, uh, and moved to Griffith. My grandparents lived on a station out there because they came over as 10-pound palms. Um, my dad was actually born in England, so he came out. So we lived in Narandra for a while and probably moved to Griffith in, in about 84, 85, showing my age. And then I remember sort of driving back and forth between Narandra and Griffith and, and looking down in the car really fast, looking down the rows of vines, and that sort of sparked a bit of an interest. But it wasn't until... I suppose I went to university, I was doing a chemistry degree and started meeting people that were doing wine science and, you know, they sort of, I couldn't believe wine science was a degree to be quite honest, Um, but they were really good people and good fun and I think a a good mate of mine who I played footy with, Joel Pizzini, gave me a bottle of wine for my 21st birthday and it was beautiful and then I started working for McWilliams just as a university holiday job. I was catching chickens um, at Barters for the university holidays before that and then thought I needed a change, something to use my brain. And so, yeah, took a job at McWilliams, just casually waxing tanks and all those sort of things. And, yeah, that's how it all sort of started, really. Wow. Well, first off, you've just shocked me by talking about chemistry. I knew that you were a bit of a nerd, but I didn't know you are that much of a nerd. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I was very good at <laughs> maths and physics and chemistry and shocking with English. And you can talking to me, you can probably tell. Not at all. That's amazing. And I can see, well, I mean, yeah, why kind of wine science is a little bit of a shocking. You're like, is this a real thing? Is this actually something that we can do? But what do you, what do you mean by you were catching chickens? What? what, what? Uh, so I had to earn money during university holidays um, just to help fund my drinking habit. And <laughs> so I worked at Barters Enterprises. That, so that was one of the big um, – industries out in Griffith at the time and they had casual labour and you just go out there and I think there was 36,000 chickens in a shed and there was a crew of 10 of us and you had to catch them all in a week um, and then they'd, so they'd, that's where they were raised and they were taking back to the egg where they'd go, and, they'd go and change them to a different shed where they'd collect the eggs. Oh my gosh, as a, a city person that just floors me, that's amazing. <laughs> 36 chickens running around you all day you end up with scratches and all sorts of things. Uh, do you eat good. chicken now? Uh, look, I'm a KFC lover, as you know. Um, <laughs> but I did go off it for a while. When you start dreaming about chickens, you know it's time to uh, for a change. <laughs> I'm going to give you grief over that another time. 
So uh, you also did a little bit of travel. So you also went over to France and did vintage over there. What was um, your time in France like, and what did what did that teach you? You're in the um, you're in the ore department, weren't you? That in Limoux. Yeah, in Limoux. I did, a, I did a trip with Boot Barrel Company in 06. It was the first time I went to France, and that was a good opener. I'd never been overseas, I'd never been overseas before, so it was my first trip. And then I got a gig with um, Sierra Dark, which is a big cooperative. They're major sparkling cooperative down in southern France. I think they're about 22,000 ton or something, which is quite big. Um, and that was really good. They're very automated, some of the systems they had. But I got to work on this program where – they had so for charity for the town they have all these individual plots of chardonnay and then they would for two acres i think everyone produced two acres of the best chardonnay they could so they cropped it right down manipulated so all the rest of the vineyards were cropped quite high because it's a big high producing area for sparkling but then this little patch they made the best possible chardonnay and so i think there was like 68 growers and they all had four barrels or four barriques of chardonnay and that was my first stint overseas it was amazing and they're very different to australian wine as in you know we're very analytical um lots of testing etc whereas they just press the juice into barrel check the ntu and let it rip really there was no acid adjustments there was no yeast yeah very very different but good to understand how they did it and good to get a sort of outsized perspective and you know, things to utilise, you know, further down the track when I took over the Chardonnay production at McWilliams. Mm, yeah, the simple life of uh, just see, popping it in and see how it, how it goes. Um, that kind of makes sense, though. Is that where your love or your love affair of Chardonnay kind of started? Yeah, it was sort of in and around there. I sort of got sort of thrown the gig by default really at McWilliams in about 05, 06 when they were shutting down the site so that all the premium wines were done at a little site called Yenda and so all the major production was done out at the bigger winery at Hamwood and I worked at Yenda my whole career virtually until they shut the site down in 08 and there was no one who said to do it so I just jumped in on the Chardonnay um, so we did you know all through Tumbarumba the Yarra Valley through Lilydale I got to work on all that so it's probably 04 so, 04, we started in Tumbarumba, so I was assistant winemaker then. Um, and then it transformed into the 842 that we made there. And just that, that was all I did, really, was Chardonnay um, for maybe, you know, seven years. That's all, that's all I made, really, was Chardonnay. Um, and so, yeah, tasting wines got to go. We bought Evans and Tate in 05. So, got to go over and do tastings with Matt Byrne over there at Evans and Tate. Um, but, yeah, just get to see Chardonnay. That's That's... Everything, everything I drank, everything I read about, you know, everything I made was just Chardonnay. Oh, well, that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, your Chardonnays are fantastic, but they are such a pleasant wine to drink all the time and they're so different wherever you are. I can imagine how different it must have been to be over in, in WA and looking at their clones and what they do over there and their climate, which is completely different. You, you touched on the fact that you joined McWilliams in 1998, is that right? And then you joined the winemaking team at Mount Pleasant in 2014. Yeah, I think 98 was my first year as a vintage, well, not really vintage, I did holidays. So 99 was my first vintage, but I joined about November 98. Yeah, waxing tanks, filling barrels, cleaning floors, cleaning tanks, just all the usual um, stuff. And I really, you know, I'd done three years at university and I wasn't getting very far with my degree in terms of I was having too much fun playing football, drinking. So I thought I'd 
better settle down, do my degree by distance, and then just start working and find something that I really love doing. And, and wine was good. There was heaps of winemakers there. Um, at the time, Russell Cody was one who you probably know, uh, but he was very good. We played footy against each other. I used to smash him all the time. But uh, he he was good in terms of he's very down to earth and he would just explain things to you in a way that made sense and you could apply that. And he said something along the lines of, you know, he had like 50 barrels, all different barrels with the same wine in it. And he asked me to get a blend out one day and he said, I want that barrel, that barrel, that barrel, that barrel. And I said, well, why don't you just put them all in the same barrel? Then it's easier. And he goes, well, they're all different. Every It's all the same wine, but every barrel makes a different wine and it's blending those different barrels to make this greater wine, which was probably the light bulb moment, I suppose, for me. And I went, well, that's pretty cool. And then it was just, it sort of just escalated from there. I couldn't taste the difference between Semillon and Chardonnay and Riesling or anything. They were just white wines on the bench. But they'd call you in and do tastings. Um, you know, McWilliams offered to put me through university, so I jumped at that, um, to change, obviously to change over to wine science. And then I yeah, just got really involved in it. And I don't know, when you're young and keen and you're just jumping into everything and wanting to do as much as you can and, you know, the annoying kid that asks questions, but... You know, that's what it was. And just access to fruit, like working for a big company, we made fruit, you know, we made wines from WA, Eden Valley, McLaren Vale, Barossa, Yarra, Tumbarumba, Hilltops, Orange, like everywhere. Um, So you got to see a lot. Vintages were hectic. So vintages would go three or four months, but you, the experience you got in that vintage was, you know, you couldn't get it anywhere else, I suppose. Yeah. What, what do you mean, remember a time where you, I mean, you talked a little bit about looking at, you know, talking about the different barrels and having that light bulb moment. Do you remember a time where you realized that, you know, McWilliams and Mount Pleasant was a really big deal in terms of the scope of Australia and your kind of first impressions of working for a company that meant something as opposed to how that's changed over time now? Um, I, 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 having not, come through the wine industry as a youngster, I didn't get or appreciate the scale, the size, you know, the history or anything like that. I had to learn it all on the job. So, you know, McWilliams were just a, a winery. I didn't know what they did. I didn't know what they produced. Uh, I didn't understand the history until I started working for them and, and you know, working alongside um, the winemakers, the family, Doug McWilliams there, you know, and just talking to them and they would tell you about stories about their granddad or other people and then you started going oh that's interesting and back in time number of years and then then you'd you'd go to like wine shows back before you were judging but just to do the tastings and meet other winemakers from different regions and you'd ask their story and they'd tell you their story and then you can see all these links you can see how all these regions back in the day were helping each other out and working together I suppose and then I didn't understand the significance of Mount Pleasant, I suppose, until sort of Phil Ryan would come down for tastings um, and everyone would sort of line up to taste Lovedale. And, and then I think one of the – I can't remember who it was, maybe oh, it might have been Codes or someone back in the day, sort of just explained what Mount Pleasant was and how important it was. And that's, shit, that's pretty – you know, that's significant for the Australian wine industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean – I can imagine there's so many working parts and like you said, it's a big company. There's so much going on and, and unless, you know, you kind of have somebody that uh, as a mentor or, or, or you have somebody that's followed the Australian wine industry for a long time, it's hard to um to really uh, 
appreciate or, or, or gather that kind of scope when you are in, you know, in your kind of younger years, I suppose. But we have to talk about Maurice O'Shea because, you know, it's got to be done. Um, I was going to mention that The Wine Hunter, which is uh, an amazing book by Campbell Madison, you actually gave it to me and it's an incredible read. It's the life story of Australia's first great winemaker. Um is definitely a good place for anyone to start. But can you tell us a little bit about Maurice O'Shea's legacy and what that means to you and, and what it's brought to your experience? Yeah. Um, I sort of only really learnt about Maurice O'Shea when I came to Mount Pleasant. I'd heard his name. I'd read The Wine Hunter. Um, and it's funny, we just had Campbell Mattinson up here a, a month or so ago because we're getting him to redo the book um, because – We've sold out, I suppose, and we need, we want more copies. We want to share that story because it's such a good story. I suppose it's, it's his ability to pick sites, um, you know, well before anyone else. Um, you know, other people in the valley were here, but he sort of came in and, and saw the old hill for what it was and realised the old paddock right next to it had so much potential. I mean, it's perfectly sheltered. It's, you know, arguably, you know, the, the best site in the in the valley for its protection from the afternoon winds and sun, like it's just an unreal sort of backdrop for grape growing. And then to be able to look at Lovedale and, and realise the potential there, to see Rose Hill for what it was, um, and nail those sites. You know, he was the first person to, you know, begin working with refrigeration. I mean, throwing ice blocks into the tanks is probably frowned upon now, but you know, he understood what it meant. And what the impact it had on the wines going forward, I suppose. Um, yeah, so it was all those little things that he did. Um, yeah, and we don't know how he did it. Um, there's not a lot of records kept. I think Brian Walsh, who, who was put on as winemaker after him, only got to work with him for one vintage. So it's sort of you get to taste the wines and they're freaks. Um, you know, I've had some, a few, lucky to have a few of his wines and they just open up so beautifully and it's amazing that they're, you know, 70, oh, I don't even know, probably older than that nowadays, year old wines. that They're just amazing. And, and to be able to be able to pick his brain and say, how did you do that? What did you do? How did you pick it? What, what, all those questions. Um, try, we're trying to work it out anyway. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it must be, I mean, there's, I suppose that little bit of mystery around it is, is what was he thinking at this time and where did he get his ideas from? I mean, what I love about that book is that it doesn't just tell you um, about Maurice Sachet, it really puts you in his world. And so you can kind of imagine what life was like going about at that time. And I think that maybe that is, you know, yeah, like I said, the mystery of it all of how, how was this person so ahead of his time and and what was he thinking when he was making these wines and they they are transportive um so pretty incredible but you work with some amazing estate uh, uh, esteemed um sites now that, that that he established so talk a little bit about old hill old paddock um lovedale and rose hill and and is there a particular site that you look forward to working with every year yeah um look he probably got his just just to go back on it, I mean, being thrown on a boat when you're 15 years old to go to France by yourself back in 1915, I suppose, would be pretty daunting. And then over to France to do your university, I mean, that, that's a pretty amazing thing. And then lecturing at a university when you're so young. I mean, I don't know. 
Crazy. Yeah, crazy. Anyway, back to vineyards. Sorry, I was just. <laughs> I don't know. At 15, totally. I mean, what I was doing at 15, I don't know. I don't even think I knew my right arm from my left leg. Like, I, have, I wouldn't have had a clue. It's pretty, pretty unique and, and you. Uh, it does make me think, uh, what are we doing with our children today? <laughs> exactly. It's very different. Um, I suppose sites, they're all, I mean, Lovedale was the one back in back in when I started out early. Lovedale was, you know, the pinnacle for Mount Pleasant, who was always, the whites were always the strength here. But I think over time that's changed, um, that the, the Reds are now getting the acclaim they deserve. Um, they are some beautiful sites. The Old Hill um is a pretty freaky vineyard in in terms of it's almost like not a set and forget, but it it, it sits there and it can handle the, the heat waves. It can handle the wet years. Uh, you know, through 2016, which was a shocker, the fruit off it was amazing, clean. Uh, it doesn't, you know, it throws its fruit load every year. It's the same, you know, exactly what you're going to get off it. Um, uses you know a third of the water of anything else around the place, um, it, and it it has this character that's very very unique, and you can pick it in a lineup. So if I like if I line all that wine up, you can just go well that's the old hill. You can start canceling working out what the other ones are. It's a bit of a amazing, and that was sort of the one that I loved when I first came up here. Um, these days though, I mean. You know, I don't know. I moved to the Hunter Valley to work with Rose Hill. I came, I did a tasting up here in 2012 um, with Chato and Higo and Scotty Mack and some, there was a few, someone else here. Yeah, we did a tasting and all these wines were blind and I went through and went, I like that, 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 that. And they were just all un, un, or unrevealed, I suppose is the word, and they were all Rose Hill. I went, shit, that's a good vineyard. I want to work with that. And so it was sort of a bit of a focus of mine to look at Rose Hill and that's why I moved up here. But it's not so much a fair weather vineyard, but it's it in the great years, like like the fourteens, the eighteens and that, it, it's for me it stands above, you know, everything else. It, it is a, an amazing vineyard. I think consistency wise, you know, old paddock, old hill, probably a bit more consistent. Um, but I like that. You know, I like we set up our vineyards. We do everything to make the greatest wines we possibly can. There's no consistency for me. Is you know, I'd rather make the greatest wine I can in one year, and it'd be slightly poorer the following year um, if it's a shit year, I suppose. Mm. Um, I don't think I'm talk- doing it justice by saying that. But, you know, for me, it's just about making the greatest wine you possibly can. That, that's that's what it is. Respecting the fruit, getting into the bottle. That, that's all I want to do. Yeah, well, it's that's not necessarily an easy feat, but I've always loved when you speak about Rose Hill because I can tell the reverie that you have for for the the vineyard. I mean, it was planted in nineteen forty six. Six? Am I pulling that out of my? No, no, that's perfect. Yeah, forty six, and then the second block was planted in sixty five by Brian Walsh, and they're the best sites, um, and they're they're amazing. Like the the fruit, I think in fourteen. The fruit off the 65 vines, I'd, I'd actually gone home, so I didn't get to see it picked. I'd come and did vintage in 14 before moving up here, um, so I didn't get to see it picked. But it looked amazing, like un, unreal. No, the canopy was perfect. The fruit was perfect. Just the amount of light hitting the fruit zone, like everything was just spot on, and it's having that. It's having that, you know, perfectness in the vineyard that lets you make great wines. You can't 
polish your turd, I suppose, is the saying. If you, you need grapefruit to, to be able to make those great wines. And, you know, we're very lucky um, that we've got these vineyards. I, I imagine, I mean, being that it's, you know, planted so long ago that the yields are slightly lower. Do you ever get frustrated you can't make more or is that part of the beauty that you can only have a certain amount of yields and that's all that each year gives you? Um, I don't know. I think it is what it is. I don't, I've never really thought about that, to be honest. Um, I, I, you, you take what nature gives you. Um, you know, you set it up to give you the best quality fruit. And if that means a lot, slightly lower yield, we went through all those drought years through 17, 18, 19 and, and didn't get much fruit off it, but the wines are amazing. Um, this year in 22, we had a fair bit of rain throughout October and so the yields are slightly up, but the fruit quality is still outstanding. Like it's, it's just one of those things where you, you, just, you just do your best to get what you get and don't get upset, I suppose. That's what I tell the kids. Yeah, well, that makes sense. You're not wishing for anything that that you can't change. It's what you give, and you feel grateful for 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 that. So you said that very well. Um, talk me through if you were to kind of like you said, you can pick it in a lineup. Talk me through what makes Rose Hill in the glass so special because um, I I've been wanting to ask you this for a long time, and I might as well do it uh, when I can record it. But what it, just for you personally, what is what is the beauty in Rose Hill? It, through aroma and taste? Um, when I first looked at it in that lineup, they it had this floral violet red fruit note that I'd never seen anywhere before. So for me, it was unique. It was almost like a pomegranate-y, you know, I've always been shocking with my descriptors, um, but it has this floral lift, this aromatic, which defines it. And for me, making sure that's in the wine is you know, that's, that's what Rose Hill is all about. Um, red fruited. And the palate is this seamless, beautiful acidity, fine tannin structure, elegance, balance, um, you know, length, all, all key attributes of great wines. And, and it just has all that. And I, and I you know, I, I'm a Pinot drinker, a Shiraz drinker, medium-bodied, light-bodied wines. That's what I love to drink. And it, it has elements of everything. Like it, it's always going to be that. And it's just so appealing. Very well said. That was exactly what I wanted to hear and I love it. Thank you. <laughs> I'll send you a bottle. Uh, you, you know that's been on record now, so you're in trouble. <laughs> um, you're not going to like this next question, but since your time at the helm, you've had some incredible accolades. New South Wales Wine of the Year in 2018 and 2019, Hunter Valley Red Wine of the Year 2018-2019, Hunter Valley Winemaker of the Year in 2019. How does it feel to be achieving such huge heights uh, within the first years of being in charge? And have you peaked too early or is this just the beginning? <laughs> <laughs> well, I cry myself to sleep thinking I have peaked too early. Um, look, you get 18 and 19, or well, seven, it was actually 17 and 18 wines. Um, <laughs> put my spot here. Um, look up. I just came in, you know, worked with um, Chateau for a few years, understood, you know, the vineyards. I, you can't walk into a place and make impact will change straight away. You need to respect what's been happening in the past and you look at it, take stock, 
see what's see what you think is right and wrong. I learned off Jim for I think he was here left at the end of sixteen, so three or four years, and understood the direction that we both sort of thought Mount Pleasant needs to go, and took all that in, watched what he was doing, and, and it's just minor tweaks here and there. I mean. Mount Pleasant historically through the the 2000s were overwrote. That was the comments, but they were wines at the time. They were selling out every year. They were getting good scores. The 2000 O'Shea was beat everything I think that year in in the holiday book. So, but I think Oak is sort of a detractor, not a detractor, but it needs to be more in balance. It can't be the first thing you smell or taste. Um, And so it's just about backing that backing that out making sure we're using the right oak and respecting the vineyard. We were, you know, we bought a heap of little tanks to be able to keep everything separate. Um, you know, it was investment in the place that allowed those results. The, the ability to be able to pick a block of wine when you want to pick it instead of having to wait an extra day because the tanks are full or having to press something off early because you're picking this other block, like having space, having the tank sizes, having the ability to pick having all the two tools at your disposal to be able to make the greatest wines is, you know, paramount to be able to do that. If, if you know, I know when Phil was making wines, his his smallest tank size was a 10-tonner, so he'd have to pick the old paddock and chuck something else in on top of it. Whereas we, we've got two tonners, five tonners, 10-tonners, everything we need. We, you know, we can pick 800 kilos and ferment it separately now. So we're very fortunate. We can keep every block separate. We can minimise our oak, have – you can always add oak back in if, if you think it needs it, but, you know, reducing it, having fruit as the key, having, you know, block characters defined, being able to see the unique sites in each of those wines and then being able to showcase them in, in the significant sites wines we have, you know, blending the best possible O'Shea we can, making Rose Hill every best barrel we possibly can, not just – getting it thrown together um, in the vineyard is all super important. And, you know, the results, I think we had a great team through that time. Paul Harvey was the viticulturist then, you know, he did a great job. People in the winery, you know, you can't can't do it by yourself. Like, no, it's not – it's a reflection of, you know, the people at the time and the vineyards and the effort that everyone put in really. Yeah, very true. And um, I mean, you're in such a good position now and and I hope that the vintages continue um, in the fashion of the the 18s and the 19s here on out. But um, I think, you know, it's in incredibly good hands. It's been 100 years since Leotina Shea purchased the Pocolpin property. What's next for Mount Pleasant and what's next for Mr Adrian Sparks? Um, All I'm thinking about is I've peaked too early now. Thank you for that. Um, (laughs) What's next? Um, well, we've just well, obviously the McWilliams and Mount Pleasant split up last year, uh, May 2021, and were purchased by the Medich family. And there's been huge investment, mainly you know the cellar doors under being undergoing renovations, um, and it's you know almost ready to go. A couple more weeks, um, and that'll be opened up to the public. I mean, that, that's going to be unreal. Um, the detail in that place what it's going to offer is going to be huge, um, not just for Mount Pleasant, for the valley. Hopefully, you know, this side of the valley has always been tough to get people. It's a, a bit of a drive to get to Mount Pleasant, but it's going to benefit not just us but everyone on this side of the valley. 
um, as, a, as a place to come. It's going to be amazing. Just put a chef on, um, you know, and it's all those fine details about making that experience really, really good. But I think Mount Pleasant, you know, we've just bought a new harvester. We've bought, you know, the best sorting equipment you can for the winery. I mean, we've never had sorting equipment in the winery, so all those wines that you spoke about earlier winning those trophies were just handpicked in the vineyard and, and, and sent through this huge fruit destroyer into tank. Now, now we can, you know, all whole berries, everything's sorted out. This optical sort of just pings out anything that's slightly deformed or slightly off colour, so it's only the best fruit coming through. So, you know, consistency of quality I think will increase and, you know, hopefully those extra one percenters will drive our, you know, drive our quality up even more. In terms of myself, I have no idea. Um, I'll be here. Um, Look, I just... I've never thought about it. I don't really think about the past or the future too too often, uh, which drives everyone around me insane. But, you know, I think... I don't know. I want to get Mount Pleasant back to where it was. It went through a few years of, you know, not the doldrums, I don't know, the hiatus, dormancy. Um, but there's, it's a really special place and I just want to be a part of getting that, getting this, this specialness or getting the story back out to the people, explaining to everyone what Mount Pleasant is, the significance of it, um, you know, getting people up here to enjoy it with me. You know, you're welcome to come up whenever you a free day, um, just to come up here, get out the vineyards, have a taste of a wine, understand why the wine looks like it does. Um, go go to Rose Hill and stand in the vines and have a sip of the wine and you can explain. Once you're there and you can explain to someone why this wine looks like it is, it, it, it's, you know, that, that can start a real domino effect of understanding and learning and wanting to know more about wine, which I think is really cool. Absolutely. And look, it's funny because you said you don't think too much about the past or too much about the future, but I think that you do. And I think it's important that um, you touched on earlier a little bit about oak usage in the wines and, and the, you know, and being wines at the time. And I think that that's so important because I think it is whether or not you think that they're the trendiest wines now, it's so important to understand what was in demand and what people wanted and what was, what was happening at that time to then move on. To, to something new. And I, I think about Chardonnay now and where we are in Australia with Chardonnay and we couldn't be at that place of restraint and poise and elegance without having that moment where we had these big, rich, clunky oak Chardonnay. So I kind of think that, you know, your um, understanding of what's happened in the past and where you're headed is something that maybe you don't consciously do, but subconsciously it's um, it's there. And I think that that is why you're in such a good position to take a Mount Pleasant to the, to the next place, wherever it may be. And I'm so excited to see the... Um, the new cellar door. I'm scared because I actually love the little old cellar door. I think it was really quaint and cute. So, um, uh, but I'm really excited. I'm sure that it's going to be um, still have its little little quirks and uh, should be really impressive. And like you said, bring more people there so that they can visit and taste the wines. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's still the same shell. It's just had a good paint job. Perfect. And <laughs> we all need that yeah. sometimes. A, a, a really good a really good paint job. Yeah, no, it's going to be amazing. Awesome. Adrian, I ask everybody, if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? Ah, oh, um, I should have thought about this. I've listened to your podcast too, so I should have known this was coming. Um, look, I, I need a beer. 
Yes. Yeah. Look, I need a beer at the end of the day. Just one. Um, I drink lager um, because I can't do IPAs and XPAs and all this sort of stuff. I am far too sensitive to bitterness, so they destroy me. Um, so a good lager, nice easy drinking lager. Pinot and Shiraz, I would say, would be my other two. Um, for reasons I think I've probably already stated, but yeah, I just think, you know, my interest in Pinot and Shiraz far outweighs. I mean, as I said, I was a Chardonnay lover f- since the dawn of time, but, you know, I think that's right. Do you need brands, et cetera, or just happy, happy with that? You. I'm happy with that. I'm happy. <laughs> kind of thought that that's where it'd be, but you never know. People sometimes throw out random things and, and you're not sure. But I, I do have a question. If you're not going to be drinking Hunter Shiraz, what other Shiraz would you be drinking? Um, not as your last drink on earth, but I mean, if you if you're not drinking Hunter Shiraz, where else do you enjoy drinking Shiraz from? Uh, the Rhone. Uh, I'm in absolute love with Rostang, um, which I'm sure everyone else is. I just can't afford it. Um, oh, great question. Um, great question. I thought you might say the Rhone, but I, I was was interested to see if you'd say somewhere else in Australia as well. I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, look, that's where I'd go. That's where I'd go first. If money was an object, I'd go there. Absolutely. Well, I have to, yeah, some of those Rhone Valley Syrahs are life-changing, so I can understand why you'd say that. Well, look, it's been a pleasure um, having you on, Adrian. It's always a pleasure when you're around, and I, I love your honesty. I love hearing you talk about wine. Um, I definitely hope I can get up there soon when, when you're ready to have visitors, um, and I hope that, uh, you know, you stop dreaming about chickens and start dreaming about whole shiny berries <laughs> with that gorgeous optical sorter that you now have. <laughs> um, and thank you so much for making the time. I've really enjoyed it and uh, I'm so glad that you uh, you finally, we finally got you on here. Yeah, thank you. Look, it's been great. Good to talk. It's definitely worth it. Cheers to you, mate. Thank you. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.